Well, good morning, Grace. My name is Josh. I'm glad you guys are here. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn it to Mark chapter 14. We'll be there in just a minute. Uh, as Liz mentioned, we've been in the book of Mark for 45 weeks now. And so it's been a long and beautiful journey. And this morning we find ourselves in the story at the night before Jesus dies. And so in this short book, there's only 16 chapters in the book of Mark. The last three chapters are devoted to the last day, day and a half of Jesus's life. And so the story is about to pick up and it's going to start moving really quickly. Um, and, and so I, I have a lot to cover today, but I believe in us. I believe in us that we can cover a lot. Uh, but what happens in the story today is it's very difficult to communicate the magnitude of what Jesus does in Mark 14. Uh, he and his disciples are in Jerusalem for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That was a seven-day feast that kicks off with the celebration of the Passover Meal. So in Mark 14, he's got this room connected where he's told the guys, here's where we're going to go eat the Passover meal. And during this meal that they have done many times in their life, they had done this all growing up and they're doing this before uh, this night, they've done it before. And all of the things that have happened that typically happen are going on. And then today in this text, Jesus does something during this meal that is unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And so the journey we have to go on is getting our mind into what it would have been like to be a first century Israelite to understand the magnitude of this. Because Jesus is going to take the story of the Exodus and connect it to himself in this Mark 14. He is going to take the story of the Exodus and the new covenant and use the Passover meal as a way to introduce the new covenant. And in so doing, he institutes a sacrament, an ongoing sacrament for the church. Now, what is a sacrament, Josh? That's a good question. Uh, this is a sacrament. You see this? This kind of looks like a Lunchable, right? <laughs> I don't mean to make light of it. That's just what it looks like. Uh, this is like post-COVID uh, sacrament, right? Before COVID, we were doing communion in like the gross way where you would rip off the bread and dip it. And now it's like, no, 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 no. We have to do it the, uh, the non-gross way. So it looks like this. Uh, but this, this is a sacrament. Now, in the church, there are two sacraments that Jesus has instituted. One of them is communion, and the other is baptism. Now, a sacrament comes from the Latin translation of the word that means mystery. So this is a mystery. The way it's communicated to us is a mystery. Now, what it means is that a sacrament is a sign. It's a symbol of something that communicated a promise of God. It's something that is ordinary, but when you experience it, it becomes sacred, extraordinary, uncommon, and significant, and even leads to transcendence in this world. And so God communicated to his people a promise, and then he gave them symbols and seals to remind them of that promise. So we demonstrate these, uh, and, and these are like dramatizations and demonstrations as we participate. So uh, it's, it's an ordinary thing that takes on extraordinary meaning. And we have two sacraments. One is baptism and one is communion. Both of them are rich in meaning and they are practiced with a sense of awe and wonder and reverence and seriousness. Now, we at Grace Church, we take communion once a month and we do baptism four times a year. Now, to my shame and in my confession, last month when we took communion, uh, I, your pastor, just totally forgot to mention it. Do you guys remember that last month? Where it was like up here and you were like, do we do it? Like Josh didn't even say anything about it. And then like a few of you old timers were like, I'm going for it. And so you came down front and the new people were like, these, what are these weirdos doing? And so, yeah, I'm very sorry for that, guys. <laughs> communion is not the thing you forget. I publicly repent of forgetting communion. Uh, 
It, it is in my personality to forget things. I am sorry. Today is my mother's birthday. Um, I, I texted her yesterday, okay? So as I was working on the sermon, I was like, don't forget communion. And then I was like, it's my mom's birthday. So I panicked and messaged her yesterday. So uh, good news to all of you. In, in paying my penance for last month's forgetting communion, today's whole sermon is about communion, okay? So you will not miss it today. At the end, we're going to come forward and we're going to take communion together. It's going to be awesome. But that is what happened last month. And I am sorry. Uh, baptism, we do once, uh, four times a year. And this is this understanding of what, what happened inwardly is done outwardly in baptism. That, that this life, death, burial, and resurrection I experienced in my faith in Christ is happening in my going under the water, you know, expressing my death, coming out of the water, showing the life that I now walk in in Christ. And so the idea is that when Christ has saved you, you get baptized to celebrate that and to, to come into union with that. And then ongoingly, you celebrate communion as a way of remembering how it was that you were saved. And so that is the rhythm. So in Mark chapter 14, Jesus is going to institute a sacrament by doing the unthinkable. So I want to read this to us and then tell us a story. So Mark 14, here we go. While they were eating, what are they eating? This is the Passover meal. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and he gave it. And when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Now truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So for many of us who are reading this, we're like, yeah, Josh, this is called The Last Supper. Like Leonardo da Vinci painted this. Uh, I have a painting of The Last Supper here. This is what it looks like. So that's what you think about, right? The Last Supper, like who's going to deny him? Like that whole thing is going on. And so our mind goes to that. But for a moment, I need our mind to go to the first century understanding and get the reference and the magnitude of what's happening here. So for us to understand this, we have to understand the, the reference they're, they're, they're going back to in the Passover and the people of Israel and what their understanding was. Because for thousands of years, the people of Israel had many stories, but there was a central story among all the stories. There's a lot of stories, but there's one main story among all the stories that constantly gets pointed back to. And when you read this in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, you never read like, hey guys, remember David and Goliath. Remember that? Like, remember that one. When Goliath came and David took him out. Remember that. Or remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that one. That's a good story. That's what we remember. Or remember Daniel and the lion's dinner. Remember Jonah and the whale. Or remember Esther. Like, you never hear that. But what you always hear is remember the Exodus. Remember that we were once enslaved to Pharaoh. And so they would have understood this. There is a central story amongst all stories, and it is called the Exodus. And Moses, when he tells the story of the Exodus, he doesn't start there. He goes a little further back. So Grace Church, I want to tell you a story. I want to tell you a story like Moses told you. I wish we had a campfire here and we could all gather around. But I want to tell you a story. And it starts in the book of Genesis. You ready for a story? Yeah? Once upon a time, this is not Genesis 1-1, but like, act like it is. Once upon a time, there was a God a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And they were so connected and in union with one another that what burst out of their community, what burst out of their personhood was creation. 
And this God wanted to create a people that he could have for his own glory, for his own possession, for his own connection with eternally, intimately. He wanted that. So he created a world and he created people. Now, it doesn't take two chapters into the story before people rebel against this creator God who made them. They rebel against him. And the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are very hard to read. Now, I know you guys are super Christian, so you flow right through it. But if you've started a Bible reading plan, be honest. Genesis is hard. You're like, man, and that's not even the hardest. Wait till you get to Leviticus, right? It gets worse. But you're reading this and you're like, this is dark. Everything's broken. There's a lot of sin. So much sin in Genesis chapter 11. Everyone's together sinning so much. They try to build a tower to be like God. And so in Genesis 11, God scatters everyone across the face of the earth, creating ethnos and people and different tribes and tongues and languages in Genesis 11. But God still wants to have a people for his own possession, a people for his glory, a people to walk in communion with him. So in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your uh, lineage great, and I'm going to use you to be the father of many nations. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless all nations. So in Genesis 12, God calls a people called the people of God. They eventually are called the Israelites. So Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob eventually has his name changed to Israel. Israel, Jacob, has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel. Literally, Israel, and also the place called Israel. So these are the 12 tribes of Israel. The second to youngest son is named Joseph. You meet him in Genesis 37, and I can say this as a pastor. This is when the book of Genesis starts getting interesting. Am I right? You're like, I endured 36 chapters. In 37, bam, incredible story from Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. You're introduced to Joseph. The coat of many colors. He has a dream. I'm not going to tell you the whole story because we don't have time. But there is an up and down crazy roller coaster where Joseph gets sold into slavery by his brothers. They fake his death. He ends up in a guy named Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife hits on him. He spin moves out of there. This is my translation, people. <laughs> He's... He spin moves out of there. Potiphar's wife's holding his jacket, claims that he made a move on her, but he didn't. So apparently he's like a good looking dude, but he makes a run for it. He ultimately gets stuck, put in prison. He starts interpreting dreams and then ultimately finds himself slowly, but slowly, but slowly, but surely as number two in all of Egypt, like Pharaoh's right hand man. He saves Israel and all the world from a famine. Joseph walks in the blessing of God. Joseph may be the most godly character in the whole Old Testament. And Genesis ends. Genesis 50 verse 20 is this beautiful verse that says, Joseph says to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It's this beautiful, beautiful story. And Genesis ends with the people of God being in favor of Egypt because Joseph is the second in command. If you would like to do further research on the story of Joseph, then may I suggest to you the 1998 classic movie called Prince of Egypt. For your further research, this is the story of Joseph. The next part of the story, if you would like to do further research on the next part, I submit to you the 1956 movie called The Ten Commandments, and this is what that looks like. So this is what happens after Joseph's. And now let me read this to you. Stay with me. All of this is connected to Mark 14. But when Moses tells the story, he starts all the way back there and gets it going. Now in Exodus chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. 
But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, increasing in number and becoming so numerous that the land was filled with them. That sounds like the promise of Genesis 12. The Israelites were multiplying in Egypt as evidence of God's promise. I'm going to make this nation great for the glory of all nations because God wants a people for his own possession. So this is what's happening in Exodus 1, verse 8. Then a new king, a new Pharaoh, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Remember, Joseph was number two in command. New king, Joseph means nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come. We must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pittim and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, this is the story of Egypt and Israel. Forget this. 430 years. For 430 years, Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh after Pharaoh deals harshly with the Israelites. They are enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. America is technically 246 years old. So just feel that. 430 years of slavery. This is bad. This is real bad. Why is this bad? Because the God who created the world is on a mission to get his glory to the ends of the earth. And he has brought forth a people of his own possession, the Israelites, to then use them to get his glory to the ends of the earth. And now these Israelites are enslaved for generation after generation after generation. So it looks like God has a problem. God has a problem because there is a tyrannical regime that has enslaved his people for, for generations. And this regime is so terrible that at one point, a pharaoh orders the killing of all Israelite boys that are born. All the Hebrew boys that are born, born, the pharaoh says, I want them all to be killed. And there is a Hebrew woman that defies this pharaoh, has her baby in secret, hides her baby for three months. Then when three months comes along, she builds a raft for this little baby and puts the baby in the raft on the the banks of the river. And in a miraculous sovereign act of God, Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the river and sees this baby in the raft, has empathy for the baby, takes the baby in and raises it as her own. And this little baby's name is Moses. Moses. Moses is the baby saved by the mother that defies, put in the raft, put in the river, Pharaoh's daughter takes Moses. So now you have an Israelite boy being raised in the house of Pharaoh. A Hebrew boy being raised in the house of Pharaoh. And as he gets older, Moses learns that he is an Israelite. And one day he is out walking and he sees, Moses sees an Egyptian man treating an Israelite harshly, beating him, harming him. And Moses comes to the aid of the Israelite fighting back against the injustice, and in so doing, he kills the Egyptian man. So now Moses is wanted for this killing. There's a manhunt for Moses, so he flees 
to the desert and for 40 years lives in a desert town called Midian. Moses is in Midian for 40 years. The people are still crying out to God, wanting them to be rescued. The people are sending up their cries to God. And after 40 years, God goes to Moses in this miraculous event called the burning bush. He, he, he shows up in a bush that burns but is not consumed. Moses goes to the bush and God says, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. Moses starts talking to this burning bush and God speaks through the bush and says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and I want you to tell him to let my people go. And he, again, this my translation. I, God, am on a mission to get my glory to the ends of the earth. I have made a covenant with the people of Israel to bless them and multiply them so that they may be a blessing to all the earth. And Pharaoh is, is hindering the mission. So Moses, I need you to go to him and tell him to let my people go. And Moses is engaging with God like, I, I don't know if I can do that. I'm kind of wanted for killing a guy there, but I, I, I'll go. In verse 11 of Exodus chapter 3, here's what it says. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you, and this will be the sign to you, that it is I who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they will ask me, what is his name? What then shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is, their, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses, you go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And you go to the Israelites and say, you're going to be brought out of Egypt and you're going to worship on the mountain. And Moses is like, who, who do I say sent me? And, and God responds, I am who I am. Some translations say, I will be who I will be. The I am has sent you. The ultimate reality, the, the, the truth of the whole world, the one that created and made everything possible, that is the one who is sending. So Moses decides, okay, I'm going to go. And Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh, I come here in the name of God, Yahweh, and you hold his people captive and he is saying to you, let my people go. And Pharaoh in some ways mocks Moses and says, by what power? You, you have no power to do this. And so they have this, uh, this opportunity of, of like dueling in power. And so God starts to send plagues to Egypt and, and Pharaoh starts to get magicians that are like matching the plagues. And so there's 10 plagues that come upon Egypt and the first few are matched and mocked by like Egyptian magic. And, and then ultimately it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. So here are the 10 plagues. Water turns to blood. Then it goes to frogs, then it goes to lice, then to flies, then livestock pestilence, then boils, then hail, then locusts, then darkness, then the death of the firstborn. And with every plague that is sent to Egypt, God is saying, let my people go, let my people go. But Pharaoh's heart grows harder and harder. The center of his being grows harder and harder, and he won't do it. And so the last and final and most devastating plague comes upon Egypt, and it is the plague of the death of the firstborn. The first nine plagues spared the people of Israel, but the tenth plague is aimed at everyone. Everyone will experience the tenth plague. But God gives a word to Moses. And Moses is to go to the people of Israel, and he tells them this. Moses goes to the people and says, get dressed. Pack your bags. Pack your bags. Pack your clothes. Put on your satchel and get ready. But before you leave, you're going to eat a meal celebrating what God's about to do. 
So you get dressed, you get ready, and then celebrate this meal. And before you go to bed, you're to take the blood of the lamb that you killed, and you're to place its blood over your doorpost and on the sides. And when this tenth plague comes, when, when the angel of death comes, it will see the blood on your doorpost and pass over you. So in Exodus 12, verse 12, it says this. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is the day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance, a sacrament. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is verse 17. Because it was you, it was on this very day that I brought your, your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. This is Mark chapter 14. In Jerusalem, they are celebrating Exodus chapter 12, verse 17, the festival of unleavened bread. And, and the, the math, you, you can look at this. Most scholars say between the first Passover and the last supper is 1,400 years between the Passover and the last supper. So verse 17, celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For 1,400 years, they've been obeying Exodus 17, 17. Because this is the day that I brought you out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for generations to come. They knew that. Everybody had done that for 35 generations. They had been doing that. Verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animal for your family and slaughter the Passover lamb. And then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of your door of your house until morning. And when the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top and the sides of your doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter the house and strike you down. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. This is the story in which Mark chapter 14 is celebrating. 430 years of slavery ending in this night, ending in this event. God's people finally freed from all of this oppression, finally a power more powerful than Pharaoh has intervened on their behalf. And it has intervened in the most dreadful of ways. That Pharaoh's hard heart produced this and God ultimately sent forth the death of the firstborn. But you have to catch this. You have to catch this. In order for us to understand Mark 14, we have to get this. God did not spare Israel's sons that night because they were better than Egypt's sons that night. God spared Israel's sons that night because a spotless lamb died in their place and blood covered the door. Let me say it another way. If an Israelite did not have blood over their door that night, they too would have experienced death. This is not about one being better than the other. This is a story of something of far more magnitude. You could sum up the Exodus story in three words. Salvation through 
substitution. Salvation through substitution. That is the design of the story. That is what the story is teaching, that everyone is in trouble. Death is on the way. If a power greater than the power that's holding me captive does not intervene on my behalf, I have no chance of making it through the night. This has nothing to do with me as an Israelite being better than the Egyptians. This has all to do with there has a way been made for me. That is, that is far beyond the power that I can make for myself. This is a story of salvation through substitution. That is the Exodus story. And Grace Church, I submit to you, that is the gospel story. If you were to take the gospel and sum it up in three words, what is Jesus doing? Salvation through substitution. Salvation through substitution. That is the story of the Old Testament. And built in the Old Testament sacrificial system was a tension. And this is what I mean. There was a tension here. Because what the people were doing in the Old Testament was sufficient for their time, but it was incomplete by design. One more time. What they were doing in the Old Testament sacrificial system was sufficient for God's ask in their time, But by design, it was incomplete. By design, it was incomplete. They knew it. God told them it was designed to be incomplete. It was always unfinished. So what does that mean? It means the tabernacle and all that went into the tabernacle was a picture of an ultimate tabernacle that was to come and complete the mission. The sacrificial system by design was incomplete because it served as a picture of the one that would be the ultimate sacrifice. The day of atonement where the bull would be sacrificed and the scapegoat would be sent away and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies was always designed to be incomplete because one day someone would come who would serve as the great high priest, as the bull who is slain, as the lamb who is sent away, as the scapegoat who is sent away. The exodus was a picture of the coming of a savior because ultimately a new and better exodus was on the way. A new and better tabernacle was on the way. A new and better day of atonement was on the way. A new and better sacrificial system was on the way. The design was built to be incomplete. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, the author says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The author of Hebrews knew that whole design was incomplete. It was impossible For the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. There was always a need for something greater. There was always a need for the completion of the incomplete. That is why when John the Baptist sees Jesus on the banks of the Jordan River, he says to everyone listening, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a proclamation! What an introduction! What a declaration! John the Baptist knew something that Jesus knew that there would come a day when the people would not be asked to provide the spotless lamb. There would come a day when God himself would provide the spotless lamb. Salvation through substitution. So Grace Church, hear this. In Mark chapter 14, the unthinkable happens. What is the unthinkable? Here's the unthinkable. That Jesus Christ didn't go to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jesus went to Jerusalem to become our Passover. This is not a celebration of the Passover. This is the completion of the Passover. 
This is the fulfillment of the Passover. This is the once and for all ultimate completion of all that is incomplete. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. The understanding is that something happened in Christ that completed everything that was incomplete in the whole story. So in Mark chapter 14, when Jesus sits down with his disciples, he does not say, remember the Passover. And that is what is mind-blowing. When Jesus sits down with his disciples, he does not say, remember Egypt. Remember what God did to set us free from Pharaoh. In Mark chapter 14, Jesus sits down and tells his disciples, remember me. This bread is no longer the body of the lamb. This bread is now in remembrance of my body. This blood is no longer a signpost of the blood of the lamb. This blood is now a picture of me. This is my body. This is my blood. And I am going to rescue you from something far worse than Egypt and something far stronger than Pharaoh. Jesus is proclaiming, I am the new and better Exodus. I am the greater Exodus. And here is the connection that should stagger us, should stagger us, should humble us to the dust and simultaneously rise us to the heavens. This this connection blows me away that in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father is saying to all the forces of darkness that hold us captive, he is saying to them, let my people go. Let my people go. That is what the, the declaration of the cross is for everyone who would listen. Let my people go. The invitation of the cross is come out of Egypt. One who is stronger has now made a way for you to be free. And so you listen to the Exodus story and you're like, that's a cool story historically. But I submit to you, that is your story too. You are enslaved to something you cannot be free from. You've tried. And you are not strong enough to overcome the spiritual darkness that enslaves you. You are powerless to redeem yourself. You have no chance to overcome what is holding you down. You don't have the strength. I love you. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are dead in your attempts to save yourselves. You need a power greater than the power that is holding you down. And God has sent forth his son to be the greater power. And the invitation is beautiful and is profound. Come out of Egypt. You don't have to be held down anymore. But there's also, in the invitation, there's a warning. There's a warning. Because in the first Passover, when death came to Egypt, it it passed over the people who had the blood. But what did it do to those who didn't have the blood? They were condemned in their sin. And so here's the warning. If you are not under the covering of the blood of Christ, then you are under the rightful condemnation of Christ. If you do not sit currently under the covering of the blood of Christ, then you currently sit under the rightful condemnation of Christ. And the gospel story is that those who are under condemnation can come out from that and join in the glory of being under the blood of Christ. That is why Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ. 
There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because he has set us free from the law of sin and death. He set us free from all that. He has made a way for us. And this is the good news of the gospel, that you did nothing to earn that. You did nothing to deserve that. It has been offered to you. And you go, Josh, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad it is. You don't know my Egypt. You don't know what I've experienced. You don't know how captive I am to my sin. I I don't. I don't know. Um, And in some ways, I don't have to. Because I know what's been done on your behalf. And so I can say to you with full confidence, your sin is no match for God's grace. Your sin is no match for the blood of Christ. There has never been in history of the world a sinner who has come to Christ and the blood of Christ backed away from them, going, sorry, I can't cover that. That's a little much. In the history of the world, the cross has been sufficient. It's always been sufficient. But in Exodus chapter 12, it's not enough that the lamb would be slain. The blood had to be applied to the door. Death was coming and the blood had to be applied to the door. So what does it look like for us? We apply the blood of Christ through faith. Through faith. That's the ask. That you would put your faith in Christ and come out of the condemnation under the covering of Christ. And, and I know, I've, I've felt this personally, like, how much, do I have faith? How much faith is needed? Where does faith work this way out? But that's the ask on us. Have faith that the blood of Christ spilt in your place that his body, broken in your place, is enough to save you, rescue you, redeem you from all of the condemnation of sin and all of the powers of darkness. That's the ask. How much faith? I have been greatly helped by an illustration that a theologian named D.A. Carson shares about the Exodus story in relation to faith. D.A. Carson tells a story about this. He says, picture two men in Egypt the night before the first Passover. Picture two men in Egypt, the night before the first Passover. One is named Bob, and one is named John, and they are both Israelites. Now, they know what's coming. Death is coming for all of Egypt. Death is coming, and they have been given a task to do, put the blood over the door. And so in this story, Bob goes to John and says, man, John, I am so nervous about what's happening tonight. Are you nervous, John, about what's happening tonight? And John says, I'm not nervous at all. God told us what to do. He told us to get dressed. He told us to prepare the meal. He told us to slaughter the lamb. He told us to put the blood over the door. told us to be packed. told us to be ready. I'm ready for it. I can't wait. It's going to be awesome. And Bob says, yeah, I know. I know, John. Like, I heard it too. Uh, But it's scary. Like, all these plagues that are coming, that's scary. And, And John, it's easy for you to say you only have one son or you have three sons, John, but I only have one son. And so tonight, my firstborn son is on the line. So yeah, I, I did what I was supposed to do. I, I packed my bag, and, and I took the blood, and I, I put it over the door. But I'll, I'll sure be glad when this night is over, Bob says. And John responds, not me. Bring it on. I trust the promises of God. Well, that night, just as God promised, the angel of death swept through Egypt. And the question is, Which one of those men lost their son? Was it Bob that lost his son? Or was it John that lost his son? And the answer, of course, is neither. Neither of them lost their son. Because death did not pass over them based on the grounds of the intensity or the clarity of their faith. 
Death passed over them based on the grounds of the blood of the lamb. Death passed over them based on the sacrificial substitution of the lamb. And that picture is what gives us great hope that God is not looking for clarity of faith. He's not looking for overwhelming amounts of faith. He's just asking us to put our faith, however much we have, in the grounds and the blood of the Lamb. That that is where our faith stands. So in Mark chapter 14, Jesus tells us that he is the new and better Exodus. And he offers us the invitation, come out of Egypt. In his in his Death on the cross, he told all the powers of darkness, let my people go. And now there is nothing holding us back from coming out of Egypt. Now, just like the Israelites, were, were they rescued out of Egypt and then Egypt chases them and God has to like drown Egypt in the Red Sea and then they still wander? Is that our story too? Absolutely our story too. Totally. But we're free. We're free because of what Christ has done for us. And communion is the ongoing celebration where we remember we did nothing to earn our freedom. We did nothing to achieve our righteousness. We did nothing in our own merit to deserve the Passover. But based on the grounds of the blood of the Lamb, we have faith in that. And so we celebrate freely that God has been gracious to us. And then we join the Holy Spirit in the work of getting out of Egypt every day. The ongoing sanctification of getting out of Egypt. And so in just a moment, Grace Church, we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to do what Jesus told his disciples to do in Mark chapter 14. So here's here's the process by which we're going to do it. The band's going to come up and they're going to sing a song. During that one song, you're invited to do a couple things. You're invited to come forward and take the bread and the juice and then go back to your chair, but don't eat it just yet. Just hang on to it. And then we learn in the rest of the New Testament that when you take communion, you're supposed to do it uh, in, in a posture of repentance, in a posture of introspection, that you should come forward going, God, I realize that my sin made this necessary. And so during this first song, you come forward and you grab communion, but you also repent, and you lament your sin, and you, you be honest about where you are. And the invitation is if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you would come forward and celebrate communion. If you're here and you're just checking this out and you're not a believer in Christ, this is really not for you. This is designed as a sacrament for the family of God. We invite you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, to first receive Christ. Allow the Passover lamb to be your Passover. But for those of you who have received Christ, for the first song, come forward, grab communion. Take a moment to repent of your sin. And then after the song, we're going to all take communion together as a church. So I want to pray for us as we go into a time of worship. Father, thank you for the gift of salvation through substitution. God, thank you that in the cross of Jesus Christ, you are saying, let my people go. God, thank you that in the cross of Christ, you have you've given us a Passover. God, I pray that this morning that would stagger us. That would move us this morning. That you loved us so much you didn't leave us in our sin, but you came for us. And God, I pray that as we sing and we worship and we repent, that we would experience your joy and your presence and your power. 
Father, as we go into a time of celebrating communion, may your spirit move in our hearts and do the work of drawing us out of Egypt more and more and more. God, we continue in worship in the name of Jesus. We take communion in the name of Jesus. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.